Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 28, 2010. Definitely got an interesting program lined up today. In fact, it'll be a little bit more normal. I feel like I've been focusing on a major project and I need some normalcy. Today is going to be more of a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We we live in, well, perilous times. We've been sent out as sheep among <laughs> wolves, so to speak, and that's generally not a good thing. Um, and as a result of it, there are ravenous wolves, and they are actively attacking and tearing up the uh, body of Christ and Christ's sheep. It's just one of the occupational hazards when it comes to being a Christian and doing any kind of Christian ministry. Well, here at Fighting for the Faith, what we do is we take what people say in the name of God to the Word of God. We compare the two uh, to see if someone's given you the straight story, because we believe God's Word is true, and, well, everything else uh, that contradicts it isn't. And... Uh, and those, uh, it turns out to be a lie is what it comes down to. So, in fact, you can't use lies in order to proclaim the truth. That's just not how truth is proclaimed. Anyway, long story. So, and what we do here is politically incorrect. This is not for the faint of heart, and this is not for the person, you know, in fact, I, I get emails to this effect all the time. You've got to stop doing this us versus them thing. Don't you understand that the world is going to turn us off and they're not going to listen to us as long as you keep pointing out the errors that people are doing? Why can't we just all love Jesus? Well, because they're not teaching correct doctrine and we're instructed in Scripture to rebuke them and, well, not only just rebuke them, but rebuke them sharply. It's it's one of the occupational hazards of having to do what we do. So we do the politically incorrect thing here. And just so you know, I have never once in my life ever signed a document saying that I would subscribe to and abide by political correctness. I have to obey God rather than men. And as a result of it, um, I because I haven't signed that document, I'm actually not bound by it. So, in fact... Something for you to consider, if you have not assigned a document saying that you will abide by political correctness, it's not binding to you. You you don't have to be politically correct. It is, 
then you could say that well societal pressure dictates that I uh, that I be politically correct. No, it doesn't. You know, just you don't you don't have to buy into it. Just don't be it. I don't I don't have a problem being politically incorrect and not buying into it. I never signed the document and I don't give into societal pressure. I know what I mandated to do from scripture and uh, I have a higher authority that I have to <clears throat> give an accounting to. As a result of it, I think I'm going to focus in on what he's asked me to do and uh, not kowtow to political correctness. And you should join me on this. It's all kinds of fun being on this side of it, by the way. And also, one of the things we do here is, well, I try to have a little bit of fun, which does mean that the fun that I have comes at the expense of, well, the the people who are saying said crazy things about God and or doing crazy things about God. Because here's the deal. I, I, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, okay? I do try to communicate with many of the people that I um, review sermons on and I critique and stuff like that, and they're not really interested in talking to me. As a result of it, I'm not trying to convince them. I'm trying to convince you. They're not my target audience. You are. So something to keep in mind there. Okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to do some email. I'm backed up on the email thing. And, uh, again, love the emails, and I do not have the ability, not even close, um, to uh, respond to, uh, you know, every email. And uh, as a result of it, um, you know, I, there's only a handful of them that I, can, that I can ever respond to on any given week or any given day here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, just if, <laughs> if you saw the amount... <laughs> The amount of emails that I get in between Twitter, Facebook, and regular standard email, uh, the number of messages that are sent my way on a daily basis, I could literally uh, spend the entire day doing nothing but email, and I would well, but then I wouldn't be doing a radio program. That's how long it would take me to you know to respond to all of them. I do read them all, and uh, and I respond to the ones that I that you know that I believe I can respond to. And uh, it's really capricious. It's just based upon whatever I think or feel that particular day. Just want to let you know that. But I do actually really appreciate the feedback. And uh, and uh, usually it's the critical emails that uh, rise to the top, although I haven't been getting too many of those lately. Um, <laughs> I wonder what that means. Ah! Anyway... Um, so just want to let you know how the policy works here on email. And then, uh, and then after we do email today, got a, a, a story out of the Christian Post. Anglicans confront decline, plot new course. Sounds brave, doesn't it? I mean, just makes you go, wow, all right, the Anglicans. And by the way, we're talking about the Canadian Anglicans. I mean, we're going to hear about their cutting edge, bold step to, you know, to plot a new course in the, in the midst of decline. And, and we'll see if, this is really boldness. And then Al Mohler uh, read a piece of his, uh, it was yesterday or the day before, day before because we had to do Friday Light yesterday. And uh, he's got a, a, a new uh, op-ed piece called The Shack, The Missing Art of Evangelical Discernment. We'll be uh, taking a look at that brand new op-ed from uh, Al Mohler. And uh, and then our sermon review today is not actually a sermon, it's a lecture uh, given by Al Mohler, entitled Preaching with the Culture in View. Preaching with the Culture in View. So much talk nowadays about, you know, how, 
you know, in fact, it seems like all the documents and the stuff I've been researching talk, you know, talks about, well, the culture expects this from Christianity, therefore we have to do that. And uh, Al Mohler, is, uh, he's got some very good salient points in this lecture. It's so good that I, I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. And I will say up front, there's some things in it that I don't exactly agree with. Okay, Now, I know you're sitting there going, Chris doesn't agree with Al Mohler. Well, he's a Southern Baptist. I'm a Lutheran, you know. And, <laughs> and he makes he makes a point in there talking about the two kingdoms uh, regarding Luther's view of the two kingdoms. Which basically made me go, hmm. I I don't I I'm not sure if we're talking about the same two kingdoms doc, uh, doctrine that I understand, but I I understood his point. But that's you'll, anyway. We'll get to it. I don't want to get way too far ahead. So uh, with that, we're going to uh, to dive into the program proper, and it's time to reveal, if you would, uh, the winner. I, I, if you remember a uh, a while ago, I was talking about the fact that I really felt like I needed some. Uh, music, some uh, some kind of music that would segue into our email, uh, and as and I did get somebody on Facebook sent me uh, what I consider to be the perfect, exactly what I was looking for, email segment music, and we're going to now uh, preview that for you. Just sounds so retro email-y to me. Yeah, this this is definitely going to be our email music. Yeah, that's uh, from Jerry Lewis's uh, masterpiece, "Who's Minding the Store," a little se- uh, a comedy segment where he's uh, well, it, looking like he's on a typewriter, but he's not. But anyway, we're going to be using that as our email music uh, for from now on on into the future here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. So that's our brand new email music. And uh, we're going to start with an email from a gentleman by the name of Neil. And Neil writes, and he says, uh, he says, hello, I came across your show during the James Duncan slash New Spring controversy. It was terrible how New Spring leadership handled the situation, and Mr. Duncan was brave to speak out. I say this despite having attended New Spring for around two and a half years including volunteering with the student ministry for about a year. I am no longer a member anymore of this church and don't consider myself to be a Christian. I assure you my change of heart had nothing to do with any controversy. It hinged on being painfully honest with myself. Uh, this brings me to my question. In your latest podcast, you quote uh, Luke 24, 46-48, uh, to which Old Testament passage is the quote referring? Jesus says, thus it is written. Where is it written? And thank you for your time and hard work on the radio show. Okay, Now, the, what he's talking about here, let me pull up the passage in the text. It's uh, Luke chapter 24, and uh, we have Jesus saying these uh, these words. Thus it is written that Christ, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are, my, uh, you are all witnesses of these things. So Neil is writing and he's asking the question, when Jesus says in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the get, that what exact, what exact passage is he referring to? And, um, and so <clears throat> here's my response back to Neil. 
I said, Neil, I, I'm sorry to hear that you're no longer, uh, you no longer consider yourself to be a Christian. I actually understand that. I personally came very close to jumping ship and becoming an atheist myself. I've wandered down those dark paths and I've spent time mulling over the claims of Bible critics that justify their abandoning of Christianity based upon trying to find every nitpicky seeming contradiction in the scriptures in order to claim that it's not trustworthy and therefore not true. Uh, The arguments always seem to run like this. I found a Bible passage of scripture where it's obvious that Jesus said something that is obviously not true or the apostles' resurrection stories don't exactly match up in all their details. Therefore, I have no choice but to come to the conclusion that the Bible isn't true, Jesus never existed, and Christianity is complete mythology. (laughs) Over and again, I found that the alleged contradictions uh, that these people bring up are the result of the reader's lack of understanding of the text as it was written in its historical context. These critics end up applying 21st century scientific precision to an English translation of the text. They're not really interested in knowing the truth, but instead they're looking for an axe to grind or some argument to cling to in order to justify their unbelief. This passage that you've uh, pointed me to is one of their favorite texts to point out, uh, to point to in order to, quote, plant seeds of doubt. In Luke 24:46, Christ stated, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Yet there doesn't seem to be a corresponding text in the Old Testament that explicitly discusses Jesus' resurrection on the third day. So what are we Christians to do? Are we? Oh no, Jesus said it's written and, that, and there's no Old Testament passage that he's explicitly referencing. What do we do? Well, the explanation is simple. And the greater context of Luke 24 actually points us to the solution itself. Jesus, in this verse, is referring, in referring to the scriptures, was not referring to one particular passage, but instead was referencing the whole body of the Old Testament prophecies about his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. The point of Jesus' words is not that such and such a verse has now come true, but that the truth to which all of the scriptures point has now been realized or fulfilled. As we examine chapter 24 of Luke, we twice see Jesus expound upon uh, upon the uh, scriptures before, uh, before the teaching of the apostles in Jerusalem. He told them that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. That's and then in Luke 24:44 all throughout uh, the the section Christ uh, spoke of the Old Testament in its entirety rather than referring to any specific passage and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them all the scripture in the scriptures all the things concerning himself that's Luke 24:27 thus there is a contextual precedent in Luke chapter 24 itself so that when Jesus stated thus it is written it would be reasonable to associate with this, the whole of the scriptures pointing to his last days. When Jesus said that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, he was referring back to something Isaiah had predicted many years earlier. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed 
Following his suffering and death, Jesus was indeed to rise from the dead, as can be seen from the prophecy in Psalm 168, verses uh, verses 8 through 10, which say, I have set the Lord before always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. As for the third day, I would point out the fact that Jesus ties his death and resurrection to the story of Jonah and the large fish. He makes it clear that Jonah's story points to him. He does this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, where he states, uh, but then he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, uh, so will be the Son of Man three uh, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I hope that answers your question. And uh, and what I'm going to do, Neil, is I'm going to email you back two documents that I hope will give you a more scholarly approach when dealing with a, a, alleged discrepancies in the Scriptures. And uh, feel free to email me anytime you have a question. The Christianity that I hold to doesn't require one to check their brain at the door, nor does it require one to run and hide when someone has a tough question, nor does it require you to believe that you can discover the truth of it by having some mystical subjective experience. So, Neil, I hope that answers your question, and uh, you will be in my prayers as well as my family's prayers, and I'm sure the prayers of uh, the people who listen to Fighting for the Faith. All right, moving along here, Mike from Los Angeles writes, he says, I just listened to your January 19th podcast and the debrief on uh, the Paget interview. I realized that the little dis- discourse about your inconsistent, pr- by the way, this is my appearance on Doug Paget's radio program. That's the debrief here. You know, in the same week, I, you know, Doug Paget and I, you know, well, we talked quite a bit that week. Um, He says, I realize that the little discourse about your inconsistent pre-modern epistemology and modern scientific beliefs wasn't the most important part of the interview, other than trying to define what your pre-modern understanding is. But I thought of a question which may help uh, help show why being being inconsistent is something the postmoderns are guilty of as well. Okay, Mike, let's see what you got to say. One could ask, why, if you hold to a postmodern view of truth, do you still accept modern science okay, or modern medicine? Doesn't it bother you when they make truth claims with certainty and even, measure, and even measurable uncertainty? No one wants a postmodern doctor. Instead of a diagnosis, you would get musings about how to interpret white blood cell counts, asking what cancer means to you or how, uh, how results from lab technicians are skewed because of his particular socioeconomic lens, ridiculous and perhaps worthy of a Marty Python radio drama. Paget didn't seem to get or agree with a lot of what you were saying, but it's a start. It's it's great to hear some earnest discussion on the two conflicting worldviews from people who actually hold them. You know, Mike, you make a good point, and um, Francis Schaeffer makes a point similar to this in talking about the modernist liberals uh, that he was combating and their relativism and their subjectivism that they uh, were engaging in. And he basically, he, what he talks about here is is that um, these liberals, the, both modernist liberals and postmodern liberals, they have they have this really weird way of dealing with the truth. 
they live one way, and then when it comes to the spiritual or the or, or God, uh, they they have a different compartment in their brain where the you know, that doesn't touch the other doesn't touch the other rela- other reality. It's he describes it as kind of an upper story. So what happens is is that. Uh, with postmoderns, I mean, when they are driving their vehicles down the highway, they still believe in absolute truth. That, in fact, I don't see any postmoderns when they, when the light turns red, wander off into the, um, in, into oncoming traffic and into the intersection going, you know, I, I just, I have no idea what redness is. And, uh, you know, what is red to you or we, you know, it, 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 am I absolutely certain that red means stop? Maybe, maybe in, in another, you know, to somebody else, red might mean go. They don't engage in such philosophical sophistry and games when it comes to the real world and nor, nor when they're checking out at the, at the, uh, at the grocery store after having purchased, uh, their weekly commodities, uh, do they sit there and go, you know, when the, when the lady at Walmart says, although I wonder if they wouldn't shop at Walmart, uh, when the lady at Walmart says, you know, that'll be 2350, sit there and go, you know, I'm not so sure. What does 2350 mean in the grand scheme of things? So what, the point that you're making though is well taken. So the idea is, is that these guys play games when it comes to God. They kick God into a different category. They, they click, they kick, spiritual truth into a completely different category all itself and it's this upper story fantasy world that they've created and what happens is you can't live out their their philosophy you can't live out postmodern philosophy in the real world you can't apply it in you know you can't live it for real and as a result of it their lives are bifurcated in the real world they actually do believe in absolute truth when it comes to god Oh, well, that's a different subject altogether. We have to approach the things differently and we have to be humble and can't uh, know anything with certainty. There is no authority and yeah, it's just ridiculous. And so what happens is, is that their lives are literally uh, in conflict. They're in conflict with themselves. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I personally can't buy into postmodernism is because you can't live it out. Uh, not in the real world, not where the rubber hits the road. And uh, as a result of it, you know, I I buy I buy into this idea that truth is knowable and it's universal, and not only and it's absolute, but it's not based upon my opinion of it. I have to kick to a higher authority. And uh, if you read the opening uh, chapters to C.S. Lewis's book about mere Christianity, he alludes to this philosophically. And uh, what he what he points out is is that uh, if you're riding the bus. And, uh, and, so, you know, you're, you're getting ready to sit down after getting on the bus and somebody steals your seat, you know, kind of zooms in. And just as you're ready to put your, your rear end down on the seat, they zoom in and shove you out of the way and take your seat. And what, what would happen in a situation like that is you would say, Hey, you can't be taking my seat. That's wrong. And it, Lewis points out that that language itself is very, Interesting because it assumes something. You're appealing to some standard that you supposedly, both of you supposedly believe in. Okay, what is wrongness if 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 it's not objective? Okay, so when you say, "Hey, that's wrong of you to do that," we're we're always appealing to a standard. And what's funny is is that uh, you know this standard really is universal that we all are are, are consistently pointing to. And someone would say, oh, but wait, what about the, the guy down in New Guinea, the, the, uh, 
the native down in New Guinea where they where they engage in cannibalism. I mean, doesn't doesn't that contradict this idea that uh, the law is written on our hearts and that you know you can say thou shalt not kill? Well, funny enough, cannibalism is actually part of a religious practice, and uh, even cannibals have a code of conduct when it comes to murder. And so it's not like you know. cannibals are not sitting in their huts looking at their neighbors going, okay, as soon as that guy turns around, I'm going to club him on the head and bake him up for dinner. No, (laughs) no, even they have a standard when it comes to murder. And so uh, just that's something to keep in mind. But uh, so you're right about this fact that, uh, you know, there's inconsistencies and you can't you can't live a postmodern life. Now, ironically enough that I, I would point this out to you, Mike, is that in Doug Paget's book, the, the name of which is A Christianity Worth Believing, that I don't think is uh, even a good title at all. The correct title for Doug Paget's book is The Christianity That I Cobbled Together in My Basement Last Week. That's really what the real name of that should be. Um, he talks about holistic medicine. And so uh, he he tries to be a little bit more consistent in the sense that he does embrace non-modern holistic medical practices. And that's part of the Christianity that we should believe in, too. So I, he tries to live this out a little bit in the real world. The problem is, is that it, you know, it, you can't really live postmodernism. You just, it's not a livable philosophy. So a uh, great point that you brought up. All right. One more email. And uh, who is this from? This is from Tracy in Brentwood, uh, Essex in the UK. Brentwood, Essex, UK. Got it. All right. Uh, she says, Dear Captain Chris. And that's <laughs> Captain Chris. It sounds like Captain Crunch. Uh, crew member Tracy reporting from across the pond once again. First of all, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for the work that you're doing for the body. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be able to uh, serve you all this way. Uh, she says, I look forward to the podcast every day, and I'm always excited so excited when you update them. Uh, first, I run out of uh, Fighting for the Faith podcast to listen to. I spend a lot of my time listening to sermons uh, from preachers, which are on the whole very good, though even good ones can sometimes be a bit heavy on the law. And I need what you do very much in the weight of my sin lies very heavy on me, and I need to be reminded of the gospel much more frequently than most preachers manage to deliver. Yeah, that, you know, I got to tell you, that's the one thing. If you know when I die, should the Lord tarry uh, on my tombstone? Basically, <laughs> Chris Roseboro, Christ died for his sins, and he died for yours too. I mean, that's kind of what I want it on my tombstone. Anyway, uh, with reference to your recent uh, interview with Doug Paget, I listened to it uh, uh, twice because it was so fascinating. One of the things which struck me was the pride and intellectual snobbery being expressed in his hand-picking so-called innovators. Uh, the following passage came to mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29, and she's quoting from the English Sanctified Version, which means she sees a very good listener to Fighting for the Faith. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence 
of God. You know, uh, uh, Tracy, that is a great passage to bring to bear here. And here's what she says. In light of this passage, being an innovator is no advantage whatsoever when it comes to spreading the gospel. You know, you make a good point. And here's what I would say. Um, God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not advanced by innovation. The kingdom of God does not grow by innovation. The kingdom of God, God's church, the body of Christ, does not grow via innovation. Plain and simple. God's kingdom only grows through the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. I think that so strongly, I would even venture to say Jesus wouldn't have told us to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name if that wasn't the very message by which that he intended to grow his church. We continue. Uh, Tracy says, with regard to the Lectio Divina sermon you played, it it took my mind back to 1997 when I did a three-year course in Christian studies run by the Diocese of Clemsford, uh, Church of England, in Essex, UK. One of the modules was entitled Spirituality, in which we had to read a book written by Henry Nouwen. Oh, nice. And uh, one of the lectures was was actually a practice of Lectio Divina. As we were sitting there, I now recall that no words sprang out at me (laughs) from all the scriptures given. Yeah, you must have been doing something wrong there, Tracy. Um, yeah, because I mean, don't they guarantee that if you climb this fourfold ladder that you'll have an experience with God? So, I mean, shouldn't words be springing out just because you're doing this? Anyway, but what did come to my mind was the Lord's Prayer. Exactly. If you, you folks, listen, you know, I've heard so many people trash talking the Lord's Prayer at over the years. It's ridiculous. I mean, do they not take into consideration the fact that you know the disciples actually came to Jesus and actually asked him asked <sighs> yep that would be a tongue fumble all right and actually asked him lord teach us to pray show us what to do tell us what to do and Jesus did not say sit in the lotus position randomly pick a verse and then wait for words to spring out at you or anything like that. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Never in, never in, in Jesus' instructions or in Jesus' example do we see Jesus emptying his mind. Instead, what we find is him talking to and communicating with the Father, using both heart and mind. Anything that causes you to disconnect your brain, bad thing. Bad. God gave us a brain for a reason, and he did not intend for our hearts and our brains to be disconnected from each other, despite the fact that all men, you know, when they're born, uh, there's the connectors between heart and mind uh, don't seem to quite be, don't quite work as well as women. Just, well, anyway, just a <clears throat> theory I work on here. Anyway, let me continue here. Uh, but what did come to mind was the Lord's Prayer. I, I could not at all reconcile our Lord's teaching on prayer with what was being taught in that lesson. And I could not even imagine Jesus doing that sort of thing with the disciples. Although I was pretty weak in my theology in those days, after all, I was being taught a very liberal understanding of the Bible in that course. For instance, I was told categorically that Moses had nothing to do with writing any of the Pentateuch. 
Yeah, by the way, the, the simple answer to that is, well, Jesus thought Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and he rose from the dead. Who are you? <laughs> and it was actually written uh, much later around the time of the exile to Babylon. Oh, good night. Uh, yeah, that's liberalism, really bad liberalism. Presupposition there in liberalism, by the way, is that miracles are not possible, and you got to get rid of anything that could be supernatural. I, I just could not reconcile the practice I was being taught with what Jesus said and did as recorded in the four Gospels, and I abandoned it. Good for you. My suspicion now is that when uh, when we prayed for the Holy Spirit to speak to us at the beginning of the meditation, he did He did just that and brought to my mind the Lord's Prayer to show me that the Lectio Divina was wrong. That's a good point. Perhaps it is a question of Jesus' sheep listening to his voice and not following the voice of another. Within the Church of England, there are... Uh, things are dire here in the UK. Many of my uh, church friends are enthusiastic all, about all kinds of meditative type spiritual practices, including alternative healing remedies, uh-huh, which I also think come from the same spiritual root as the meditative practices. It's very hard to persuade them otherwise, largely because these practices are being taught from the pulpit and because they work. You know, Tracy, again, you're right. They do work. You can have a spiritual experience. Lovingly, humbly, take your friends through the scriptures and say, you know, I was just wondering, can you show me one in the Bible where Jesus practiced this this the lectio divina thing? Where in the Bible is it taught? And uh, you know, and show them from the scripture. Do the hard work. Sit down with them and risk losing the friendships, um, because. Uh, I got to tell you, you you know, we really need to be sharing the whole counsel of the word of God and calling them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Last thing I want is somebody on the last day pointing their bony finger at me and going, you knew me for how long and you never once told me about Jesus and repentance and the forgiveness of sins? And now I'm going to hell? Yeah, that, that to me is like the worst nightmare scenario possible. All right, we are up on our first break here at Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. Uh, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church. 
So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheap O Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheap O Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. We're back. 
warning, sacred cows sacrificed and slaughtered daily here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and if you have not yet joined the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, well, what are you waiting for? <laughs> it's only $6.95 a month, and once we reach our goal of a 1,000 listeners who've uh, joined the crew, then that guarantees that on a monthly basis, well, we can at least pay our bills and our salary so that we can continue to bring this important radio outreach to you. That's how it works. Anyway, the way you do is, is you visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew, watch the screens there, because at the very end there'll be a button that says uh, click here to access the cove. It'll give you information on accessing the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove. Great stuff there, growing treasure trove of resources, theological, apologetic, and uh, doctrinal. Good, 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 good stuff. And, of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. Three eight. All right, moving along here. I'm gonna do. I can't remember when was the last time I did uh, actual news here. At, uh, well, there's a vintage newsmaker. I gotta go to it now from the Christian Post. Anglicans confront decline. Plot new course. Sounds so bold, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Wait till you hear the details. Uh, this is by Lillian Kwan of the uh, Christian Post. After more than 30 years of membership decline, Anglicans in Canada have decided to face the crisis and no longer have any head-in-the-sand denial, as one priest put it. Why? Wow, <laughs> sounds like these guys have grew a backbone. This is great. I, well, listen to the details. Flood warnings have been issued. The waters are rising, and as a diocese, we are beginning to act, said the Reverend Peter Parker, who is part of a team that was commissioned to make recommendations on how to reverse decline. <clears throat> Real simple. You ready? Here's how you reverse decline. Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations, and starting in Canada, if you'd like, since you're Canadian. But boldly proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Go out and tell the sinners out there, that would include you too, by the way, me and we're all kind of, here's the thing, all of us are sinners. So when a Christian tells a non-Christian they're a sinner, it's, it, listen, it's a lot of the th times, because they're at war with God and they hate God anyway, uh, they consider that to be some kind of a diss, like you know, oh, so you're holier than now. You're you're basically saying that you're a, I'm a sinner and you're not. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is we're all sinners. If I wasn't a sinner, I wouldn't need a savior. But because I have a savior in Jesus Christ, I obviously needed a savior, which means I'm a sinner. And if their heads are spinning after that, then you've successfully confused them. But that's that's a good starting point. Anyway, so are they? Is the is the Anglican diocese in in Canada going to go out and boldly proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and evangelize the world for Christ and preach the gospel to the lost in order to reverse the decline? <clears throat> Let me read. We quote: We are leading the Canadian Church in facing the crisis 
that all dioceses are facing, he added, according to the diocesan post. During Parker's 35 years serving as a priest in the Anglican Diocese of British Columbia, he has never seen the diocese post any significant growth in membership. In 2006, independent study found uh, that membership in the Canadian region of the worldwide Anglican Communion fell between 1961 and 2001 by 53% to under a million members. Moreover, the rate of decline was increasing while church membership decreased by 13% uh, 1981 and 1991. The next decade saw a loss of 20%. It just sounds like they're getting clobbered out there. If the diocese sailed on the way it has been the past three decades, it would have headed for the rock, said Parker, as he described the dire situation. But in 2004, British Columbia Bishop James Cowan halted the ship and charged the diocese to plot a new course. It sounds so brave, doesn't it? I mean, to, you know, all this, you know, almost piratey ship language, you know, uh, we're going to plot a new course. We're going to do the brave things. We're going to get our head out of the sand. Oh, this is great. So you're going to preach the gospel, right? Ahem. Over the last five years, the diocesan transformation team uh, dedicated themselves to countless meetings. Dis- oh, man, <laughs> we dedicated ourselves to countless meetings, discussions, and consultations Oh, man. Uh, In other words, they did nothing. To assess the situation and determine possible changes to revive the diocese. Uh, One of the recommended changes... (laughs) I'm not making this up. One of the recommended changes is closing 19 of the diocese's uh, 52 parishes. Some churches would move out and into a nearby church to form larger congregations, which would translate to greater financial support for the church's mission. So we're, we're, we're going to stem the tide by shrinking. We're going to boldly shrink. In a report, <laughs> this is terrible. In a report released this week, the team described the closures as an approach for transforming and regenerating our diocese in a postmodern Christian society. You have got to be kidding me. The goal, the team said, is not merely survival, but transformational. Decline in church membership and financial support is a problem common to all mainline churches across Canada and the U.S., but smaller numbers isn't the only thing plaguing many churches. Bishop Cowan cites skepticism, questioning core Christian doctrines, and a reduction of faith as other problems many churches uh, today, especially in the Diocese of British Columbia, are facing. (sighs) Okay, (laughs) this is driving me nuts. So the bureaucrats in the Diocese of Canada in the Anglican Church, they're going to be transformational by strategically shrinking. And because they're facing, get this, uh, <laughs> this is this is they're facing skepticism. Oh no, not skepticism! And those people who are questioning core Christian doctrines, don't you understand? There's people out there who are questioning core Christian doctrines. We've got to strategically shrink. Really? Do you? Th- <laughs> 
do you think Christianity grew and literally conquered the Roman Empire inside of four centuries by this kind of a plan? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Do you think the Apostle Paul ever faced skeptics? Do you you think the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or any of Jesus' disciples when they went out and proclaimed the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins, that they met any resistance whatsoever? When you read through the book of Acts, it's not like these guys showed up and they were somehow, you know, the liberate, liberating armies, like, you know, the, the, the allied armies, like when they were liberating France. It's not like the Christians rolled into town on their tanks and the people were, were going, oh, thank you for liberating us from the power of Satan. Oh, we want to throw a party for you and shake your hand and give you kisses and flowers. Paul was stoned. He was flogged in the synagogues five times. And you're complaining about the fact that there's skeptics out there and we're in a post-Christian world. And and there's, there's, don't you understand? We're facing people who don't believe our core Christian doctrines. (laughs) That's like complaining about a hangnail or a paper cut. Duh. Oh, man. <sighs> okay, I'm going to continue reading. Let me read. Bishop <laughs> Bishop Cowan cites skepticism, questioning core Christian doctrines, and a reduction of faith as other problems many churches. Uh, today, especially in the diocese of British Columbia, are facing. We live in a culture which talks about being spiritual but not religious, and rather than lifting and presenting the spiritual nature of our religion, we have over the years eliminated as much of it as we can, hoping that we can keep the religion alive with novel and, and with an undefined goodwill, he said, according to the diocesan post. Thus, restructuring the diocese needs to be... Um, coupled with spiritual renewal and the reclamation of those aspects of the faith which are both central and essential to Christianity. So this is a fallback position, and Cohen stressed, otherwise decline will continue. The focus needs to be numerical and spiritual stability and growth, he indicated. Fearful and at the same time excited for the future, the Reverend Parker stated, the Church of Jesus Christ in its Anglican expression is not going to disappear. Yes, it is, unless you guys get out there and proclaim, take it on the chin, risk losing it all, and actually proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and face those skeptics head on. Quote, though we have have as yet only hints and glimpses of what the church might look like in 5, 10, or 20 years, we're gaining a sense of excitement about the possibilities for new forms of ministry, new expressions of the mission of Jesus Christ to heal and transform the world. What? New expressions of the mission of Jesus to heal and transform the world. Yeah, they're completely clueless. They don't even know what the gospel is. The report drafted by the Diocesan Transformation Team will be presented to the Synod, the governing body of the diocese in March, where it will be discussed and voted upon. You know, you ever, there's a one of my favorite websites is a website by the name of despair.com. And listen, I have an MBA from Pepperdine, but I am no fan of corporate of uh, corporate culture and and bureaucrats. I think they're completely worthless. 
And um, there's this wonderful one in there about uh, that talks about meetings. It shows all these uh, like you know ten different hands all in a like all in the, holding each other together like they're getting ready to do a big hoorah. And it says meetings because none of us is as dumb as all of us. You know, this is just bureaucratic nothing. This there's nothing here. You know they're they're excited about the possibilities now that they're declining that they're sh- they're going to shut the doors of churches that's the way they're going to stem the tide. No, yeah, listen, there's skeptics out there. I, I I believe me, I've actually had conversations with them, still do on a regular basis. I don't mind I don't mind risking it all. And you know what I do with skeptics? I give them reasons. For the hope that lies within me. I talk about Christ and him crucified for our sins. And point him to the fact that the eyewitnesses said that he rose again on the third day. Proving his claim to being the one true God in human flesh. And that he died on the cross for their sins. And he loves them so much that he died for them while they were sinners. You want to see skeptics? be given repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and have faith and trust in Christ for their salvation, then preach the gospel. Put your armor on, take your sword out, and get out on the battlefield. You don't win a war by retreating. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You don't come up with a growth strategy by shrinking. Unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, do, do I sound a little exercised there? I, I think I might be just a little bit exercised. We're up on our second break, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang on to Al Mohler's uh, op-ed piece until tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith because his lecture on uh, on uh, how to engage the culture in preaching – it's a pretty lengthy one, and I want to give it justice, and I don't want the program today to be like three hours long. I know you're sitting on what? I, yeah, I know. Just work with me. I know it sounds a little out of character, but anyway, um, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled. That will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them Toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Got a fantastic lecture that we're going to be listening to from Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary fantastic brother in the lord and he's got a very this is a very good piece talking about preaching with the culture in view uh this is uh, what i consider to be a very well balanced approach to uh what we need to do when it comes to culture we'll talk about it here in a second here let me cue up our uh, <clears throat> sermon review music The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service, if you would. Today is not, we don't have a sermon, but we do have a fantastic lecture that talks about what should be preached in a sermon. And in light of the miserable news coming from the bureaucrats and the uh, diocese up in Canada who think that they can grow by shrinking, <laughs> and, and the fact that they have to face those... I mean, the insurmountable skeptics and people who actually question core Christian doctrines. I thought this would be the appropriate sermon to listen to. Good night. I still can't believe what's going on. I mean, cannot believe that these people really thought they're being bold up there in Canada. Uh, 
I'll be talking about that one for weeks. I, I just get the feeling I'm going to end up beating that horse until it dies. By the way, what, when, when the horse dies, dismount. That's just some good advice. Anyway, um, so this lecture was preached a couple of... 2006, so uh, four years ago now. Three and a half? You know, something like that. And uh, it's yeah, I, again. There's a few, a couple things in here I might take issue with because, well, of course, I'm a Lutheran. He's a Southern Baptist. But on the whole, we got some great stuff here, worth passing along, worth listening to, worth taking some notes. Because Al Mohler, I hate to say it, the guy's ridiculously brilliant. So I shouldn't hate to say it. I, mean, I look forward to meeting him someday. Anyway, let me kill the music. So with that, uh, here is uh, Dr. Al Mohler on preaching with the culture in view in gathering together for this conference is that we would all stand together for the gospel and there are a lot of derivatives from that we want to stand together for the church and by that we mean especially the church visible in local vibrant faithful congregations we want to stand together for the truth we want to stand together for the gospel not just in in general terms you know we 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 speak of being together for the gospel but we want to be very specific about the fact that this is not a gospel in general that has been that has been reduced to a lowest common denominator this is the gospel the gospel handed down by Jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to believers all throughout the centuries. The gospel is found in the scripture. We are together for the gospel. We are also together because of several very specific concerns, which we believe are gospel concerns. We come together with a sense of hope. And by the way, a great deal of our hope is as God has shown us this hope in you. I mean, when we talked about holding this conference, we weren't certain that it was anything other than uh, about the four of us talking about our concerns about what it would be together for the gospel. And we prayed that the Lord would send pastors to join with us. And here you are. We do come with a sense of hope because every one of you represents churches, ministries. And so we pray to see what the Lord will do through you. We come together with a sense of loss. It is rather tragic that we have to come and acknowledge that we are meeting together in the midst of an of a very tepid evangelicalism. We, we, we are hoping here to come into an oasis out of a desert. There is a sense of loss. Where are those congregations all across America that should be standing steadfast and true and showing the glory of God in the midst of a fallen world, there is a sense of loss. There's a sense of loss that now in the year 2006, we're having to recover ground that has been so recently lost. We're having to talk about great truths and doctrines of God's Word that have even been recently accommodated and compromised and minimized and marginalized. We do come together with a sense of opportunity I mean, that is one of the reasons we are here. It's not just to bemoan what has been lost, and, and, it, and it's not just to, to take some kind of, of, of barometric measure of, of church life today. It is out of a sense of opportunity that it could be otherwise. We come together also in something of a sense of crisis. 
That is an overused word, but the most important sense in which I use that word is that there is urgency in our meeting here. There is a sense of urgency. We need to do something, not just talk about these things. But if this doesn't get translated into into the lives of our churches and quickly, then we're wasting our time here. And let me just say, what a feast we had this morning. And if that doesn't get translated into your preaching right away, then God's judgment upon you. Uh, I'm feeling like CJ here. I can just, just tell you, God will visit you with wrath, sickness, rashes, itches. If you do not do what has been so wonderfully presented to us this morning, and soon, I think one of the dangers at a, at a conference like this is you say is, I, I want to do that someday. Well... Sunday's coming. Do it. Preaching with the culture in view. I have to tell you, I'm a bit nervous about the whole concept. And it's because I see in in our times something of a polarity of dangers here. There are some who take the culture with no seriousness at all. They ignore the obvious. And there are others who allow the culture to become dominant in terms of the horizon of their ministry. Those are dual dangers about which I I want to warn us. There are those who think the culture is in irrelevancy to our preaching. It isn't. We're wearing clothes today, and thank God for that. (laughs) Some of us more than others because we need more than others. But, I mean, we, we are deeply embedded in a culture. We're embedded in a culture in which that sign makes sense. I, I'm not sure what we have against the ease and the S's. I'm not sure. But, you know, seriously, that is a wonderful graphic design. It, it, it makes sense in this culture. It's a little bit of postmodernism brought into a conference in which we're going to bemoan the effects of postmodernism. But there, there it is. You know, let's just fill in the blanks, and we'll just, we'll just do that. Uh, we're deeply embedded in a culture in which all this stuff makes sense. We're using a language that is common to us, that is an artifact of the culture. We're meeting in a a space in which we are comfortable because we know how to negotiate this kind of space. There is electricity that allows us to have light in this room. We're a part of a culture in which we now assume all of these things, and yet most Christians throughout the history of the Christian church have no connection to the things we're here taking for granted that frame much more of our perspective than we would often allow ourselves to understand. As I say, there are others for whom the culture becomes such an issue of fascination that they are themselves representatives of an acculturated ministry. We have been warned about the cultural captivity of the church, and that is always a danger. But my address this morning is about preaching with the culture in view, and I want to begin with preaching. In the book that you were given this morning, The Fetchrift for Dr. Boyce, I had the great honor of writing the chapter on expository preaching as the center of Christian worship. And in that chapter, I define a definition of expository preaching, and then I defend it. And I just want to share that with you in order to 
set the stage for our discussion of preaching with the culture in view. Here's my, my assertion, my argument concerning expository preaching. I argue that expository preaching is that mode of Christian preaching which takes as its central purpose the presentation and application of the text of the Bible. All other issues and concerns are subordinated to the central task of presenting the biblical text. As the Word of God, the text of Scripture has the right to establish both the substance and the structure of the sermon. Genuine exposition takes place when the preacher sets forth the meaning and message of the biblical text and makes clear how the Word of God establishes the identity and worldview of the church as the people of God. Do uh, you think uh, Al Mohler here is uh, pitching for or shilling for the uh, the three to five verses ripped out of context to help you have better sex or a more fulfilling career or better behaved children or a more happy family? I don't think so. Now, I read that in order to say, first of all, that our primary attention as preachers is not to the culture, but to the text of Scripture. And so that one thing... Amen. Oh, thank God someone's saying this. Our... <laughs> I want to play that again. That was good. You know, that that one's got an amen for me. Hang on. And makes clear... Yeah, Lutherans don't say amen a lot. I got to just... Gotta... <laughs> well, we do. We say it in church, but it's not... It's usually when the the pastor's preaching where we're not sitting there going, amen, pastor, preach it, or anything like that. Although I've done that a couple of times, and I have gotten looks. But uh, listen how the Word of God establishes the identity and worldview of the church as the people of God. Now, I read that in order to say, first of all, that our primary attention as preachers is not to the culture, but to the text of Scripture. Oh, yes, your primary attention is to the text of Scripture, not the culture. Yes, 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 yes. And so that one thing most needful is that we be scholars of the Scripture. And thus, we start with a, a definition of preaching that, in essence, directs us to the text of Scripture, to the text of Scripture, and to the text of Scripture. And in my definition, I, I argue that all other issues and concerns are subordinated to the central task of presenting the biblical text. Present the biblical text. Our first task is to present that text the way the apostles would have presented it. To present that text in its enduring and eternal truthfulness understanding that the truth of that text is unchanged and unchanging, even as its authority also is unchanged and unchanging. Right on. Now, I want you to, by way of comparison, okay, I am holding in my hand a book from 2003 entitled The Emerging Church, written by Dan Kimball, forwards by Rick Warren and Brian McLaren. Okay, just compare what you just heard him say about the unchanging message, the unchanging authoritative text, right? <clears throat> Here's Brian McLaren. From the foreword to Dan Kibble's book entitled The Emerging Church, I read, <clears throat> Our understanding of the gospel constantly, our, our understandings of the gospel constantly change as we engage in mission in our complex dynamic world, as we discover that the gospel has a rich kaleidoscope of meaning to offer, yielding unexplored layers of depth, uh, revealing uncounted facets of insight and relevance. No doubt, as we move into the postmodern world, we will look back and see ways in which our modern understandings of the gospel were limited or flawed. And no doubt, 
Uh, we must be humble and careful because we can and will make the same mistakes in our new context. Yeah, that that seems like two completely opposite ends of the spectrum, and I'm going with Dr. Mueller on this one. Yeah, because, uh, listen, biblical Christianity ain't compatible with postmodernism. It's not compatible. We need to know how to speak postmodern so that we can call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but that also requires us to call them to repentance for their false worldview and their false epistemology. That's not compatible with Christianity. Christians are not called to be uncertain. We're called to be bold and certain in our proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Preach the text. But as we bear the task of making clear how the Word of God establishes the identity and worldview of the church as the people of God, we will find ourselves unavoidably linking the Word of God and applying the Word of God to the culture that we know, the culture in which we live, the culture that in so many ways is the situation, the context of the worldview that the people to whom we minister now possess and are driven by. The whole issue of preaching reminds us that we as the church start from a very different place of meaning and orientation than anyone else in talking about the culture. We're really not arguing about cultural transformation or cultural renewal or cultural recovery. We're looking at preaching the gospel to sinners. Do I hear an amen on that one? Amen. That's right. We're not talking about cultural transformation. We're talking about preaching the gospel to sinners. Yes, exactly. Will the culture be transformed by that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, probably. But I'm not shooting for that. I'm shooting to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to lost sinners, who, people who need the gospel every bit as much as I do. Right on. And that is a very, very different vantage point. Our concern for the culture is because the culture is where we find those sinners. It's not about the culture itself. All that we see is passing. The task of the church is to reach persons who are, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, each themselves deeply embedded in a symbolic and, and cultural system of meaning. We begin with the primacy of the text of Scripture because we begin with certain definite convictions about that text, its inerrancy, its authority, its total trustworthiness. The primary conviction that we must bring to the question of preaching with the culture in view is what I would assert as the transcultural authority of the Bible. Okay, listen to this point. He's talking about the transcultural authority of the Bible. Write that one down. You bloggers out there, start using it. The Bible is transculturally authoritative. You see, we are the only people on the entire planet who have a message that is addressed to every culture. Yeah, kind of. Hang on. That's not exactly right. 
it's addressed to persons within every culture. Right. We're the, we're the only people on the planet that has a message that is to every person in every culture, in every time, every nation. Love it. And we have the only message that, that doesn't have to be transformed and, and redefined in every cultural circumstance. Are you listening, Brian McLaren? Because we're talking about constants like sin and the character of God and, and, and thus the problem that, that is answered by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one sense, what we have to do this morning is put culture in its place. And that is a difficult task because even as there are these polarities, some who give too much attention to the culture and others who give inadequate attention to the culture, we understand that we also swing between different seasons in in our own experience and certainly in the history of the church between seasons of engagement and seasons of withdrawal. And as you trace the history of the church, you will see that Christians seeking to be faithful in generation to generation have had to respond in different ways to the cultural realities they have confronted. It might be helpful to define culture. I don't know why the United Nations decided to define it, but they did. (laughs) So you can find an official United Nations definition of culture. This will be very meaningful to you. It is, quote, a set of distinctive spiritual material, intellectual and emotional features of society or a social group which encompasses, in addition to art and literature, lifestyle, ways of living together, value systems, traditions, and beliefs. So there. (laughs) There's not much left out of that. And if you're going to define culture, that's probably about as close as you're going to get. An academic definition of culture offered by anthropologists comes down to this, and I quote, the system of shared beliefs, values, customs, behaviors, and artifacts that the members of society use to cope with this world and with one another and that are transmitted from generation to generation through learning. That was probably just a little bit more helpful. Culture is that which allows human beings to relate to one another. We, we have to have certain tools like language. Uh, we have to live within a meaning system that allows us to communicate to one another and understand one another and eventually even to trust one another and to live as neighbors with one another, much less to relate to one another in the family and all the rest. We're living in a time in which culture is being celebrated and cultural diversity has become one of the great objects of our social fascination and celebration. And yet, I wish I had more time to, to trace this out, this, this celebration of diversity is very, very arbitrary if you watch the debates of our current time. In reality, there's no definition of, of culture that's sufficient. None is comprehensive enough because culture encompasses everything about our experience, our knowledge, our thinking, our, our memory. In reality, we're sort of like Aristotle's fish. And you'll remember that Aristotle spoke of this little parable of the fish and and Aristotle trying to think about the whole process of thinking asked this question. He said, if you want to know what it's like to be wet, whom do you ask? Well, the last creature you should ask about being wet is a fish because he doesn't know he is. He has no point of reference having never been dry. 
And that's sort of the way we are. There, there is a sense in which we are like that fish, and, and we don't even have the ability to recognize where the culture is influencing us in ways that, that, that we don't understand, how our, our meaning system, our interpretive system, from the time we were in the crib, has shaped our anticipation, our, our perspectives, our, our intellectual tools, and all the rest. Now, this has been, I think, particularly dangerous for evangelicals in America because we just assume that what we experience is normal. And that becomes a blinding issue for us if we assume that, for instance, the early church would have much connection at all to the kind of life that that we lead, the conveniences that we take for granted the political system that is in the background to our understandings of human freedom and autonomy, the sense of security that, that most of us possess in most moments of our lives. And that's not even to mention different points in the history of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and throughout the history of the church. American evangelicalism as a movement primarily emerged in the years after World War II when America's culture was, in the minds of most of those evangelical leaders, a friendly context for the emergence of of conservative Christianity as a movement. Evangelicals felt very much at home in America during this period. They saw the problems as being primarily abroad. After World War II, they could look back and see the rise of Nazism. Even during these years, they could see the primary objects of cultural concern being overseas, communism and Marxism, liberal theology as an import from Europe. They recognized regional differences having to do with things like the rural-urban difference and northern and southern distinctives. But still, they did not think of the culture as being inherently hostile. And yet today, there are many who believe that it fundamentally is. The most sophisticated attempts to understand culture and its meaning came in America from mainline Protestantism. And at this time, you take the 50s and the 60s, the mainline Protestant denominations saw themselves as having the world by the tail. They were at the very center of the culture. H. Richard Niebuhr in 1949 delivered lectures at Austin Presbyterian Seminary in Texas, later became published as a book, Christ and Culture, and he offered a typological scheme of how Christ or Christ's church is related to culture. Some of you are familiar with this because since there was virtually nothing other than this offered for about two centuries of Christian reflection, at least in English, Niebuhr's typology became kind of fixed in the Protestant imagination of the options for how Christ is related to culture. His first type was Christ against culture. He saw this in the New Testament, which sees the world as under the domain of evil and darkness. Jesus is seen as the king of a new society. And because of this danger with culture entirely under the power of darkness, the answer to this was a withdrawal from the culture. His examples included Leo Tolstoy. And, of course, in this country, we would look at examples such as the Old Order Amish or or Mennonites who would come out of the culture and would suggest withdrawal. Now, the problem with this is that it doesn't work. You can't withdraw. I mean, not totally. You can withdraw from certain sectors of the society, but we we find ourselves so deeply embedded that, I mean, we're we're not going to give up the language. I mean, Christians do not have a distinctive language. We do not have a Christian lingua franca. It is to God's glory that we anticipate 
Before the throne of God, men and women, believers from every tongue and tribe and people and nation declaring the glory of God in different languages. God's glory is in that. And that's, by the way, we should see that glory not only eschatologically, but now. We should long now to hear those languages declare the name of the one true and living God. But you can't withdraw entirely. This is the problem. And by the way, the Amish can't withdraw entirely either. One of my favorite anecdotes has to do with the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who uh, was, of course, a senator from New York State. And uh, there are a good many of these old order Amish communities in uh, upstate New York. And he was visiting one of them. And uh, they don't have much to do with politics. And I don't think they would have known what to do with an Irish Catholic United States senator. But nonetheless... Daniel Patrick Moynihan was there, and he was talking to one of these Amish fathers, and this will tell you a whole lot about why withdrawal from the culture doesn't work. And he was talking to this this father, and this father said, well, we're having some trouble here. He said, my daughter, now remember that Moynihan was Catholic, of course. He said, my daughter's being influenced by Catholicism. And uh, Moynihan, in telling the story, said, well, I, I, I knew we were good, but I didn't know we were this good in terms of, uh, of having influence and reaching an old order Amish community. And if it wasn't a Jesuit missionary that showed up here or something. And he said, so uh, how is this showing up in your daughter? And he said, well, I heard her talking to some of her friends, and she's been talking about Madonna. <laughs> well, this, this Amish father's problem is a lot deeper than he knows. It's, it's, it's not Catholicism. But you can't withdraw from the culture. One of the other reasons you can't withdraw is if you want to sell milk. And uh, I'm not making fun of the Amish at all. Their noble effort in many ways well intended to try to show their commitment to Christ. But as you know, they do not use technology in any form. And there's no electricity and and there's no telephone or anything. And so in Amish homes in in many states, there is no electricity. There is there are no modern conveniences, and uh, and there's no telephone. But there isn't an Amish barn, because the state regulatory agencies require that milk be produced under certain defined circumstances, and the OSHA regulations require there be a phone to call for help, and so Amish people sleep warm on summer nights, but the cows are comfortable in the barn. It is impossible completely to withdraw from such a culture or from any culture. After Genesis 3, we're deeply embedded in culture. The second of Niebuhr's types was the Christ of culture. This is the opposite. This is acculturated Christianity. Those who are inclined towards this model of interpreting the culture see no distinction between the church and the culture. They see an identification of the one with the other. And there have been times when this has been really official. In other words, there have been times when this has been an an explicit experiment in combining the church and the culture without a distinction. There have been times when it has been more of an accumulated cultural reality, such as the, uh, the culture of Victorian England, or in many ways, the culture Protestantism of Germany in the 19th century. Christ is understood to make no countercultural claims upon his people. Christianity is understood to be culturally uh, estimable and accessible. The church and the culture are synonymous. Now, the problem with this ought to be painfully obvious. If we can't see a distinction between the church and the world, we're just not able to read the New Testament. 
Quickly, the third model was Christ above culture. This is the synthesis of the two. Niebuhr thought that this was the mainstream establishment dominant understanding of Christianity in the first 19 centuries of the church. So I guess we now know where he's pointing us. This is a middle way, neither withdrawal or abdication. Christ and the culture are both understood to make claims upon citizens. These can be negotiated going back and forth. There are tensions that are resolvable. The church negotiates its way, avoiding extremes. Tell me we do not hear this exhortation regularly. Let's negotiate the culture and let's avoid appearing extreme. Christ does make claims upon the church that go beyond anything the culture will understand, but let's be really careful how we let that secret out. The fourth model was Christ and culture in paradox. These are the true dualists. They see Christ and culture as not only distinct, but as two completely separate realms. There's no point of contact or meeting, and there's no synthesis possible. Perhaps the greatest example that Niebuhr could have offered of this was Martin Luther's two-kingdom theology. But, of course, that didn't work either because... You find yourself continually going back and forth. We aren't bifurcated people. We can't live compartmentalized lives. We're not just citizens in one moment and Christians the next. Christ makes a total claim upon everything that we are. We can't live with such a paradox, and we can't accept a dualism like this. Okay, this is where I would say, well, maybe I don't think I – maybe I have a different understanding of the two kingdoms than he does. And uh, the the, the idea behind the two kingdoms is that the the church and the state – are both uh, under the employment of God. And uh, that being the case, uh, the state has a particular thing that it's supposed to do, wield the sword, uh, basically to keep society in check. And the state, uh, the church is supposed to call re- uh, sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And uh, and the thing is, is that the the church can make uh, can speak prophetically to the state when the state runs afoul of God's word and clear commands, plain and simple. But maybe he's. But when it comes to the culture piece of it, yeah, maybe that's what I'm missing here. Is is that how does that all then play into culture? All human effort is hopelessly mired in godlessness. If you hold to this paradox position, you believe there is an ethic of the world and there's an ethic of the church, and neither can understand the other. And so you simply walk from one to the other. You have to know which world you're in. When you're in this world, you play by these rules. When you're in the other ru- world, you play by those rules. Yeah, that, I, I, this leads- that, that understanding of the two kingdoms I don't think is a correct understanding of it. At least that's not the way I was taught it. And, uh, you know, it, boy, with that definition, though, wow, how do you – yeah, you would end up living a bifurcated life. No way, Jose, that's not good. Niebuhr said to antinomianism and to cultural conservatism. He blamed, by the way, those who held this position for the, the acquiescence to the Nazi regime in Germany, explicitly blaming Luther and his two-kingdom theology for this. Well, you know, when you set up a typology, you're aiming towards your argument. And that's what Niebuhr was doing. His fifth model is where, in reading his book and in Following his lectures, you believe he would point us that is Christ, the transformer of culture. These are the conversionists. They're far more hopeful than the dualists. They understand a distinction between Christ and the culture, but they also understand that it is the mission of the church to transform the culture with the claims of Christ. Now, we continually hear this kind of language. Let's go out and redeem the culture. Let's go out and, 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 and conquer the culture in the name of Christ. Let's transform every dimension to the culture, whether it's the media and the arts or... Uh, or, or... By the way, that's... Uh... 
this is Rick Warren's position, just in case you're not familiar. Rick Warren is a very avid Kuiper Calvinist. That's Abraham Kuiper. Yeah. Or, or business and finance, and, uh, and, and let's subdue them to the claims of Christ, and thus we can have a more Christian military, or a more Christian economy, or a more Christian realm of arts. This leads to a very progressive uh, impulse, uh, progressive as defined as that which, which promises a better world. It, it promises a better condition if we will only do this. It's, it promises transformation, it leads to Christian activism, and promises redemption through the culture. And how many times have you heard these purpose-driven guys talk about, we've got to make a difference in the world. We, you, know, you, got, you, you can change the world. That's not Christianity. This is Christ-transforming culture model. And, yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. Now, what's really interesting when you read these lectures and you go back and read Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture, is that it appears when he gets to the end of the book that he loses his nerve. Because instead of clearly saying, yes, this last option is the one that the church must take, Christ-transforming culture, he appears to withdraw and say, virtually there is no right answer. And you have to say that at the beginning of your lectures, I guess, or no one would come. I mean, at the end, if you said it at the beginning, you'd, you'd kind of you'd pull your own punchline. If there is no right answer, then why did he go through all of this? Well, it is an exercise in trying to think it through. But if there is no correct position in his five types then what are we to take from all of this? I want to suggest that there is no answer in this. In fact, I want to suggest that there is no answer for all time, for all Christians, under all circumstances anyway. I think if you read the history of the church or if you read the Scripture, you'll discover that Christians have had to respond, God's people have had to respond to the culture in very different ways and very different times. You'd have to engage the culture quite differently if you're a captive on the river Chebar in Babylon than if you were in the the kingdom of Israel or if you were living in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom you would have to look at this very differently if you're living in a time of explicit oppression when Christians are being chased into the catacombs of Rome than in Victorian England when the, the royal family has its own designated priests It's a very different cultural context. And in our own times, I think we see that we have, even in the last several years, been confronted by realities in in which the believing church has had to say, we're going to have to rethink this again. We thought we had an answer to this, and now we find ourselves in a very different cultural situation. We find ourselves facing very different challenges. The problem with Niebuhr's typology is that, of course, they are reductionistic. They lead to a relativism. There is a real naivete in all of this because there's no one culture anyway. There's a dominant culture, but when we talk about the culture, we're really generalizing beyond the way that most people live. Today, we have a divided and confused mind among evangelicals, including many evangelical pastors who tend to see the culture as alternatingly a problem and an opportunity. We also have to worry about the myth of the golden age, this this myth of nostalgia. If only we could return to some previous moment This is a false promise. We need to be very, very clear about this. For instance, there are some evangelicals who would like to go back to something like the 1950s when everyone knew what marriage was and abortion was illegal. No one worried about their child dealing with the the fact that their teacher in the elementary school classroom would be of a different gender on Monday than they had been on Friday. But... 
To return to that time is to return to an era when African Americans often could not vote, were denied basic civil rights. There is no golden era. At every moment, we have to look back and see that the culture is as fallen as the human beings who comprise it. Right on. Yes. <laughs> the culture's fallen is as fallen as the human beings that that in, that are in it. Absolutely. <laughs> now, culture can't be meaningless. We are charged to think through this theologically. And the reason we have to think about this is because it is dangerous for us to assume that in our ministry, in our preaching, in our evangelization, in our teaching of God's people, they are not so deeply immersed in all of this that we, we have to do some very deep cultural analysis in order to understand how we can really make sure we're even communicating. Of course, that's just the language of, of words, much less in the larger universe of meaning. Culture cannot be our main concern but it cannot be meaningless. It can't be our main concern because it's passing. The very idea of a city, which is in many ways the the indicator of a culture, the very presence of a city comes when Cain, after having murdered Abel, went out to build a city. The city is filled with sinners. That's why the Bible points us to the need for a new city, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth. The city, the culture is the place of human pretensions, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon or Pharaoh's Egypt or Rome's imperial hubris. And we are those who know the explanation of why. Sin. Now what happens when you put sinners together? They organize their sin. They symbolize their sin. They translate this sin into art and into music and into literature and into institutions and into mores and folkways and customs and manners. But thanks be to God, there is also God's common grace and the restraint of sin. So we must also see culture in some sense as a gift, the gift that does allow us to live together, the gift that that does recognize the institutions that are necessary for human life. It's hard to know how to put all of this into perspective. But we're not the first generation of Christians to try to think this through. I would suggest that in order to gain a, a, a more cogent understanding of how we should understand the culture, we better not go back to the, to the 1950s and the 1940s with Richard Niebuhr We need to go back at least to Augustine and his offering of the city of God when as he tried as a faithful pastor to apply the word of God to his situation in which all the cultural questions were coming in such an acute and unavoidable way. When Rome was falling, you couldn't avoid talking about the culture. You couldn't avoid talking about the the symbolic system of meaning that held everything together because Rome had been that symbolic system of meaning for the citizens of the only world that Augustine knew. But Augustine was a Christian man. Augustine was a Christian pastor. He bore the responsibility to teach his people to preach the Word of God. And thus, when he wrote his book, The City of God, he was attempting to try to teach his people how they should understand the demands of Christ 
and the realities of culture, even in a time of emergency and urgency and collapse. He spoke of two cities, the heavenly city and the earthly city, the city of God and the city of man. And he defined these two cities in terms of two different loves, two different ambitions, two different passions, and two different allegiances. It is, I believe, in the history of the Christian church, the most helpful conceptual understanding of the very question we're asking this morning. And Augustine really tried to think this through theologically and biblically. He was not just trying to offer a sociological analysis of Rome's fall, and he wasn't even just trying to defend Christians against the claim that that Christianity had, had weakened the empire, even though in one sense Christianity obviously did. I mean, the moment you say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not Lord, you are weakening imperial ambitions. Something to keep very much in mind in America in 2006. Augustine understood that there is only one city that is eternal, and that is the city of God. The earthly city is passing. And Augustine warns his people. He asked them to look back and, and say, why is it that we thought otherwise? You know, why would we have fooled ourselves into thinking that Rome was eternal? Rome is as Babylon, is as Egypt. And throughout the annals of human history, empires rise and fall and none survive. Augustine was speaking and preaching to Christians, and he said, look, we who are believers, we who are God's people, saved by the blood of the Lamb, God's claimed and chosen people are in the city of heaven. We don't live there yet, but our citizenship there is more real than our citizenship here. And thus, it is the Christian's responsibility, Augustine argued, to think of the city of man only through one's citizenship in the city of God. This is very, very important. We don't care about the culture for the culture's sake. Our concern for the culture is simply because that's where the sinners are, to whom we will share the gospel, to whom we will preach the gospel, with whom we live as neighbors. Augustine said there are two different loves. There's only one love in the city of God, in the heavenly city, and that is love of God. It is undiluted, undeflected. It is, it is maximized to its infinite degree because the only residents of this city will be those who have been glorified. Seeing no longer through a glass darkly, seeing him face to face be the undiluted love of God. There will be no other loves. There will be no struggle in the city of God to manage one's heart. Isn't that a great promise? There will be no, there will be no struggle in the heavenly city to, to manage one's passions. There will be only one passion. There will be only one allegiance. There will be only one thought. There will be no problem of communication. And as Augustine understood, there'll be no Romans in heaven. And there will be no Americans in heaven. Only sinners saved by grace. Now, Augustine said... Oh, that is such a great point. Yes, exactly. There will be no Romans in heaven. There will be no Americans in heaven. And you know what the great part is? There'll be no Baptists or Lutherans or Anglicans 
we will finally be united again. That our primary citizenship is in the heavenly city. Now, where did he get that? Our citizenship, said the Apostle Paul, is in heaven. But we're not there yet. Now, I would argue that even ontologically, we should consider ourselves there in anticipation because of Christ's accomplished work. But in this life, which is not an accident, but God's purpose for us, we are deeply embedded in the city of man. So Augustine said, what do you do when you're a citizen of the heavenly city, but you're living in the earthly city? What do you do? Do you ignore it? Do you withdraw from it? Do, do, you, do you scandalize it? Do you reject it? Do you just embrace it? No. He said you love those who are in it while not loving the city. Oh, 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 this is so good. You can't love the city, but you love those who are in the city because they are the objects of God's love. And thus we do, just as, as Jesus commanded. What is the first commandment? The most important commandment, Jesus was asked, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is likened to this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these all the law and prophets hang. Jesus made very clear that love of neighbor is derivative of love of God. And yet we really cannot say that we love God if we do not love our neighbor. And, and as Jesus helped to put that in such a, a priority that we can understand, also Augustine tried to apply that pastorally to say, the city of man is falling, it is passing, and yet it is filled with people whose passions are for that city. The city of man, the earthly city, is, is populated by people who want to find their deepest meaning and deepest satisfactions in the city where they will never find it. And then Augustine said, we should not be surprised that sinners act like sinners. We, we should not... Exactly. Sinners sin. We shouldn't be surprised when they do that. We have to get out there and engage them with the gospel. We should not be surprised when we see sinners sinning, institutionalizing their sin, celebrating their sin. But we cannot withdraw from the people because we know they are the objects of God's love. May I make a point here? And not that I really think I'm even worthy to add to this lecture, but I would like to add something anyway, despite my unworthiness. I think one of the reasons why we are so confused in this, in, in the United States of America, is, and maybe even in Great Britain as well, is because we have been lulled by a false idea into a false sense of security. And that is, is that there's this myth that, that the United States is a Christian nation. There's a myth that Great Britain is a Christian nation. And so as a result of it, that idea that is so false is you know, we got people who are paralyzed and don't know how to take action because their their goal is not to go and preach Christ and him crucified for sins and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the sinners out there. Uh, they want to somehow restore or rebuild the Christian nation. 
Yet the Christian nation concept is a myth. The UK will pass. The United States will pass. What will come up in its place? I have no idea. I have I have no ability to come up with such foresight. But by believing that the UK or the United States or whatever country, X country X, Y, or Z is a Christian nation, that false idea actually confuses us and causes us to get our focus off the one thing that we should be doing. Loving the sinners in the United States, in the UK, and in our nation, and in our culture, enough to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and I'm not going to do it because I want to prop up the United States as a Christian nation, but because I want God to regenerate and transform lost sinners into adopted children through the preaching of the gospel. I will preach the gospel regardless of whether or not the United States improves. I'm not into improving the United States. It will pass. But those sinners, they live forever. We sinners, we live forever. In some sense, the Christian does hold a dual citizenship. But we must be very, very careful that we do not commit the error of placing them on any equality. The one is passing, and the other is eternal. Let's put it this way. The one is missiological, and the other is doxological. The only reason we are here is to show the glory of God in the preaching of the gospel, in the formation of local churches as congregations that will display God's glory in a fallen world, and in preaching the gospel until he comes. There is no other purpose for the continuation of culture. There is no other purpose for the continuation of this earthly life, but that God's glory would be seen in the preaching of the gospel, in the gathering of the nations, and in the display of his glory in faithful congregations living out the gospel before a fallen world. When the Apostle Paul said our citizenship is in heaven, he did not deny that there is an earthly citizenship that is also a matter of our accountability as disciples. This same Apostle who said our citizenship is in heaven invoked his Roman citizenship. And when he wrote to the Romans, made very clear in chapter 13 that there is an obligation of God's people even to civil society and to civil government, because it's not an accident. It's not a mere sociological development. It is one of God's gifts of grace to all peoples that we would know an institution like marriage, that we would be, that we would be able to constrain sin, at least somewhat restrain sin by the presence of government and law, and show God's glory in the, the punishing of the evildoer and the upholding of justice and the vindication of the innocent. You see, this is one of the constants that we often do not understand. God's glory is seen when even a pagan judge rules rightly because there is an accidental testimony to God's law and to God's character when even a pagan judges rightly. And by the way, the same thing is true. God's glory is seen, and there's a witness 
to the Creator's grace when two unbelievers are married to each other and maintain that marriage in covenant fidelity. They don't even know why they are. But they're testifying by their very following of this of this call of common grace to the glory of God. In one sense, we should see culture as a gift so that we can communicate. We also understand that God has, has given gifts to His people, gifts of artistic ability, gifts of, of musical ability, gifts of linguistic and, and literary ability. I'm thankful that, that there are people who do know how to design buildings. We should be thankful for that. Let's not... Again, let's not deny the obvious. We should be thankful that engineering and architecture has has constructed a a place where we can meet safely here today. You do not want to meet in the building I design. (laughs) We should be thankful that we we are here without threat of having gangs burst into this room and uh, disperse our meeting. There there are many things for which we should be grateful. We should be thankful that we can look at at testimonies to the glory of God and some of the most beautiful artistic expressions we've ever seen. We, we were singing music, and this, this music is a representation of a cultural language we have learned. Now, the words, I mean, as linguistic units, they're still a part of that culture as well. By God's grace are able to convey God's eternal truth revealed to us out of His Word. Which, by the way, in the statement of affirmations and denials you've received, is one of the reasons why we suggest that, that God's people must affirm the fact that, that God has revealed himself in understandable sentences. We should be thankful for that. And yet we always have to keep culture at a distance. We're, we can never give it our full allegiance. For the sake of the people of God, we must instruct them continuously to remember that their citizenship is in heaven. Because here's the danger. We are living in a culture that makes it very easy for Christians to believe that our citizenship is in a very meaningful way right here. When the New Testament excludes that as a Christian option. There are all kinds of questions Christians face that I do not have time to answer here. What about political involvement? What about the nature of law? What about the engagement with the arts? There's much to be said there, but my focus is missiological, a theological reading of our culture. I want to shift very quickly to just talking about why our culture right now presents some very significant interpretive problems for the Christian gospel. Why our culture right now must be understood by the Christian preacher, at least insofar as we would understand how to communicate the gospel to people whose conceptual system, which they have derived from this cultural context, leads them to think one thing and to, to come with a complete set of, of assumptions and to be very much influenced by a set of passions and allegiances that may make the hearing of the gospel more complex than we might think it is, the hearing of the Word of God as we preach. We've had massive shifts just in recent years. In the the past 200 years, we've seen human society transformed in the West with the rise of modernity and industrialization. Henry Adams was right when he said, writing in the year 1905, that a boy born in the time of Moses would have had more in common with a boy that was born in 1890 than that boy in 1890 would with a boy that was born in just the first years of the 20th century. Talking about social change, cultural change. It is coming in such a fast, almost lightning speed that we now assume even that, by the way, as a facet of culture. 
We assume that things change and, and, and in a progressive direction. And we assume that, that things are, as one postmodern analyst says, uh, are always liquid. Whereas for most human beings, it hasn't been that way at all. Most human beings have assumed that the world their great-grandchildren would inherit would be very much like the world their great-grandfathers had known. We're in a very different time. In the 20th century, you've had the rise of urbanization, the, the spread of technology, the, uh, the availability of transportation, access to communication. We've gone from making products to becoming what Robert Reich calls symbolic analysts. Most Americans in the 21st century will work in occupations in which they analyze symbols. That may not be their title, but that's what they're doing. They're dealing with ideas. Uh, they're knowledge workers, as Peter Drucker calls them. A very different situation. Most of us don't do much with our hands anymore. And it shows. We, we don't know how to fix things. But we don't fix them anyway. We just throw them away and get a new one. These are cultural assumptions that are just very, very strange in light of human history. And then we have the rise of the postmodern worldview that all, and all that comes with that. I want to speak of just a few facets of, of our cultural moment that might help us missiologically to understand where we are and, and the cultural system that influences where our people are and where lost persons are. Any list like this is reductionistic and perspectival. I just want to offer a, a few suggestions. And, you know, here's the reality. The diversity of cultures and the, the importance of culture generally comes to evangelical Christians when we think of missions somewhere else. We have inherited something of like a National Geographic understanding of the importance of culture. We know it's important over there. Look at how those people dress. And, 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 and look at that language and, and that system. And it's not normal. We're normal. Well, we need to turn that same perspective back on ourselves. And if we are unaware of the missiological challenges of this culture, we blind ourselves to the obvious. Every one of these points I'm going to, begin, I'm going to offer begins with the word self, which says something about our cultural context. The first is self-fulfillment. We live in a culture focused on self-fulfillment, radical individualism, most Americans believe that life is something of a quest and the self is something of a project. And in this self-fulfillment, they believe that what they want out of life is the ability to develop an exciting, exhilarating, satisfying, and secure sense of self. They look for fulfillment primarily from within the self. The self becomes a unit of experience, and the reference of all meaning is the solitary self that engages other selves only insofar as it chooses. This comes with the therapeutic revolution. As Philip Reif said in his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, we are now living in an age in which the primary question asked by most persons is, am I well? And the primary meaning behind that question is reduced to something like psychology. Am I well? Of course, this has now become so ubiquitous in this society that the psychotherapeutic worldview suggests that all Americans, all human beings throughout all history are either in therapy or in denial. <clears throat> and therapeutic modalities and means of, of answering questions with a therapeutic response has become the reflex of this society. And if you doubt this, just go in your local Christian bookstore and after you sneeze after passing all the Christian potpourri pots and you actually find a book... What, what you're likely to find once you finish sneezing is, is a book that is 
is really a demonstration of this very therapeutic worldview. We'll just add a few Bible verses. We have to understand that for Americans, this is normal. It is normal to be told that the self is the center of the meaning system and that the self is a project that they undertake throughout the, uh, the entirety of their lives. Let me suggest to you something, just when you think about the logic of the cross, and, and just when, if I could make something tangible here about how this impacts the gospel, let me suggest this. Most Americans believe that what their problem is is something that has happened to them. And their solution is going to be found within. In other words, they believe that they have an an alien problem uh, when we, that is to be re- When we go back in our sermon reviews, and, and I, you know, I point out the fact that the pastor is preaching a gospel to victims, they're not perpetrators. This is what Moeller is getting at here. The American mind thinks that they've been perpetrated against, but they have no concept about the fact that they've, they're, one, they're the ones who've perpetrated sin against God. Interesting point. Resolved with an inner solution. When the gospel says that what we have is an inner problem and the only solution is an alien righteousness. And you start looking at... Yeah, amen. Wow. How that dichotomy comes together and you understand that you can think you're talking about the gospel and if you aren't really clear, I mean really clear in your expository preaching about what the gospel means, it will be heard by many people as a new form of therapy. After self-fulfillment, self-sufficiency. People in our culture are very much prone to believe that every single individual possesses whatever is needed for fulfillment and meaning, and it's deep within. We need to call it out. We are the self-sufficient cause of all meaning and happiness, and furthermore, we are our own self-sufficient authority as well. There's no external authority. There's no hierarchy. There's no need for tradition or custom or manner. We can redefine ourselves, and we are sufficient to remake ourselves in any way we may see fit. The self-sufficiency is buttressed by the society which tends to reward those who appear to be most successfully self-sufficient rather than those who understand their categorical insufficiency. And again, this has a great deal to do with how the gospel is heard. The gospel isn't about how we can become more self-sufficient. The very fact that it begins with the word self is a gospel contraindication. But it is a cultural assumption. The third is self-definition. And this one has become more radically important in recent years because this is perhaps the extension of some of these other cultural movements. Most Americans now believe that we have the ability to define ourselves. This is pushing the limits of autonomy. We will now define what it means to be human. We will define what it means to be male and female. We'll define what it means to be able to change those categories. We will define how we should be ordered together. We'll redefine marriage. We are self-defining and we will claim for ourselves the right in the project of the self to define humanity, gender, marriage, sexuality. We'll define authority. We'll define everything. And this is where it reaches its, uh, its apex. And those who are suggesting that 
that what we need to do now is control our evolution. This is a, the new argument coming from many of the radical evolutionary theorists. We need to control this. We need to use these new technologies in order to redefine what it means to be human. And, of course, this comes hand-in-hand hand with postmodern theories of truth, which become intellectual conveniences for this process of self-definition. You simply argue that all truth is socially constructed, and, and you deny that truth is in any way objective and, and that it can be communicated in sentences or in propositions. And so you simply say there are no fixed truths, there are no fixed definitions, there are no fixed authorities, and thus we can define ourselves however we wish. And then, by the way, since I'm in this territory, you have some Christians, even some who would call themselves evangelicals, who are arguing that the self is the insufficient unit, so what we need are the selves. This is the communitarianism that you will find. And it's, it's where you will find some Christians suggesting that, uh, that doctrine is, for instance, uh, uh, a representation of a cultural linguistic system in which we are negotiating together these definitions. George Lindbeck, the Yale School, and, uh, and all the rest, uh, this is very much that project. It is still a human definition. That, that's the thing. It's an anthropological level definition of, uh, of the most important and ultimate issues of life. Next, I would mention self-absorption, the centrality of the project of the self. You know, this has led to such things as what uh, Barbara Defoe Whitehead now calls expressive divorce. We're so self-absorbed that you will find Americans now saying, I divorced because I needed to in order to become the self that I need to be. And, and so you have people talking about how this became a learning experience for me. One more one more experience for the project of the self. And, of course, divorce is just one. That just comes to my mind because in recent years, this has become a new thing. You, you would not have heard that even 20 or 30 years ago. You wouldn't have heard people talking about divorce as a good experience they went through that, from which they helped to, uh, to emerge as another self. It's now becoming common uh, conversation in the culture. This has to do with the fact that in our self-absorption, we generally think that it is all about us. And, of course, this is something of a primal sin in the first place. But in this American form, in this culture, this self-absorption takes the place of believing that we can actually, we can actually make the world come to terms with us. And if we don't understand that that is the cultural bent of this society, we won't understand something about the preaching of the gospel who think to people who think all reality will come to terms with me rather than with the individual having to come to terms with the reality. Self-transcendence. This cultural motif explains why people now are so enamored of spirituality and why they will, if they can get away with it, here, your preaching of the gospel is another spirituality. Walter Truett Anderson suggests that America in the 21st century has become the belief basket of the world. And, and most Americans think you can pick up this from that, this spiritual practice, this idea. It's hard to even say this doctrine because that's a little too concrete. But, but this thought, this theme, uh, this name... And this idea of self-transcendence suggests that that is what our spiritual self is for. That's the, that's the key issue. In other words, recognizing that there is a spiritual capacity within us 
They suggest that it is nothing more than an extension of this self-project. Now we extend the self through self-transcendence. Spiritual practice, we put it together. You know, in a bookstore not too long ago in an airport, I saw a book entitled, Funny You Don't Look Buddhist. And the subtitle was, A Jewish Buddhist Spirituality. Well, I mean, you can get away with that in this culture, and it ends up on the... Well, Rob Bell's uh, a Buddhist, claiming to be a Christian. ...the table at an airport bookstore. And if we don't think that the people who sit in our church pews are walking into church and walking into worship out of that world, we fool ourselves. I mean, we got to really be clear about the mono and monotheism. I mean, folks, we are living in Canaan, and the Canaanite bookstores are all over the place, and the Canaanite literature is coming into ours. I mean, you, just, you have this, this world of... of Inherent polytheism, except it's, it's now so made into a consumer reality that you can just kind of buy this and buy that. I mean, we have stores that sell angel products. And by the way, these aren't the angels in the Bible. In the Bible, when an angel shows up, you wet your pants. <laughs> yep. I, uh, this is so good. You don't put a little cherub up on your bathroom wall. And it's a completely different thing. I mean, the angel has to say, look, in the Gospel of Luke, don't die, okay? We bring you good tidings of great joy. Yeah, but Patricia King and, you know, Todd Bentley, they, they talk to angels all the time, you know? They show up on motorcycles at the back of the church. But all this is important only insofar as we understand that people are walking into our churches, the people we speak to in our neighborhoods, they hear what we say in these terms unless we are at tremendous pains to make clear that we're not talking about self-transcendence. We're not talking about Christian discipleship as a project of the self. The last I would mention is, is self-enhancement. The idea of that we wouldn't even extend life. You know, what culture, what culture would have the kind of debate we've been having about whether baseball players should take anabolic steroids and get away with it? I mean, we're living in a culture in which people are arguing about whether you have to put an asterisk beside certain statistics in baseball. CJ even knows what those statistics mean. I just know that people care about them. What I care about is living in the midst of a culture in which that makes sense to people in which people think that they're not going to die, in which people think that the project of the self can even extend to things like plastic surgery, which, by the way, is now called aesthetic surgery. Don't you love that? Now we will make our body an object of art. We're living in a society in which it makes sense to some parents to give their daughters breast augmentation surgery as a high school graduation gift. You know, what, 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 what have we absorbed within the heart of this culture? That would, that would celebrate such a lie about what it means to be human. And, and lest we, lest we think it's just about someone else, we have to admit this is very easy for all of us. Self-security. We believe we are safe. 
We live in a world in which it makes sense not to worry. We have childproof caps on our medicine bottles, which mean that adults actually can't get into them. We have warnings on coffee cups from McDonald's that you ought not to drive with this in your lap. We have vaccines, antibiotics, MRIs and CAT scans. We have the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. We have bumpers on our cars that are made to receive the impact and then return to normal. We are told to wear seatbelts. We have a massive military. We see a police force. We have hospitals, and we think we're safe. We even extend this financially. We want to retire. We have investments, and we feel safe. Most Christians throughout the history of Christianity have not felt safe. I was reading some time ago a biography of of Luther, recently translated from the German, in which this biographer, who is not a believer, that's what made this all the more interesting to me, this biographer, who is not a believer, said, you have to understand that Luther was speaking to people who went to bed every night afraid they would die and go to hell and never awake. And thus the urgency of of Luther's Anfechtigen. He was afraid he would die and face a holy God before he would awaken again. Because in the next room, a monk could easily die, thinking himself well when he went to bed. No antibiotics, no, no blood pressure tests, famine, sword, pestilence. Plague. Christians shared with others the thought that this may be their last day. And thus there were certain things they had to keep in order. And there were certain anxieties from which they could not escape. And yet this biographer said, obviously this makes Luther difficult for us to understand. Well, it makes the gospel more fundamentally different to understand for people who think everything is about safety. And there's a sense, of course, in which the gospel is about safety. That's Romans 8. The Romans 8 only makes sense if there is no other kind of safety. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes to the church, And he begins with these words, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In chapter 2, he says... Beginning at verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, the ESV translates 
1 Peter 1, 1 with the phrase, to those who are elect exiles. New American Standard, you'll remember, translates that for those who reside as aliens. I wonder if we really believe ourselves to be elect exiles of the dispersion. You know, in thinking about my responsibility with this address today, I wanted to conclude by reminding us that we are and must ever be mindful of the fact that we are elect exiles. We're here. We have an address. We have a a phone number. We wear certain clothes and speak a certain language, and we come out of a certain culture in which certain things make sense and other things don't make sense. But all of that is passing. It's missiologically important, but it is eternally insignificant. We are elect exiles. I think the temptation for evangelicals in America is to believe something else and to feel ourselves very much at home. And I think many of the tensions in evangelicalism today are the tensions felt by a people who are just beginning to awaken to the fact that this culture just might not be such the friendly place that we thought it was. And all of our cultural optimism is coming into question when we begin to look at the deeper levels of what is happening at this culture and we begin to realize there is no ground for such optimism. We can't just withdraw. That would deny our commission. But we can't feel at home. That would deny our identity. We are a chosen race by God's grace a royal priesthood. And when when that was being discussed, when this was being taught, when this was revealed to Peter, he was speaking to elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And aren't we thankful that by God's grace we can speak right now of elect exiles in so many nations of the earth, speaking so many different languages? So our task is to preach and teach the gospel so that that list is expanded until we see that eschatological vision of men and women believers, the elect, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And we won't be Americans, nor Pontians, nor Cappadocians. We'll be His. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for Your Word, because without this Word, we would be left negotiating in a sea in which we would drown in confusion. We would love the wrong loves. We would seize the wrong passions. And we would mistake that which is passing for that which is eternal, and that which is eternal for that which is passing. Father, ground us in your word for your glory. And Father, give us hearts that are missiologically attuned to understand what culture means in this fallen world and why we must take it seriously, but why we must not take it ultimately. Father, we pray that you will guard your people from error and keep your people holy, which is Peter's concern in this letter, that the world would be able to look to the church and see a very different culture being aborned and being formed that will never pass away. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.
Probably one of the best lectures I've heard on this topic. Loved what he had to say, and I think that helps frame things, especially in light of all the claims being made by the emerging church, by the emergent church, by the seeker-driven church, by the purpose-driven church. They've completely capitulated to the culture and sold out the truth and have basically become the culture. They've lost the gospel as a result. And I think uh, Dr. Mueller puts just the right touch on this and puts us in the right tension that we can't ignore it. And at the same time, we must engage in the culture because that's where the sinners are who need to hear the gospel. Amen. Good stuff. Well, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And if you are growing as a result of the work that we do here at Fighting for the Faith, then uh, would you support us financially right now? Uh, we're still looking to get quite a few more people to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. And if you join before the end of January, your monthly contribution will be tripled by a generous anonymous donor. And so this is a great time for you to act and to support Fighting for the Faith. The way you join the crew is by visiting FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the Join Our Crew button. And uh, and then pay close attention to the screens there because when those screens come up, you will uh, the last screen will have a button that says click here for information to access the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in good, sound, Christ-centered theology, apologetics, and doctrine. So you don't want to miss out on that. So fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew. It's a mere $6.95 a month. And, of course, uh, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.